Are you curious about what it takes to become a successful venture capitalist in 2023? Then tune into this episode of Beginner's Mind. There might just be a difference in what the VC might optimally want and what the founder optimally wants. But again, if the founder and the investor are both working for the long term and they're looking to build a big business together, um, the way we always put it at Playfair is this is a pie and we'd all much rather have a maybe slightly smaller slice of, of a bigger pie than have a massive <laughs> slice of the small pie. Today, my guest is Jeevan Sana, who is a rising star in the world of venture capital, having graduated from UCL in pharmacology and honing her skills at PWC's insolvency and restructuring department before transitioning into the venture world. Chivan is now a part of Playfair Capital, one of London's leading seed stage investors, where she works closely with portfolio companies, sources and leads deals and co-leads Playfair's DNI initiative, Female Founder Office Hours. Join me as Chivan shares her wealth of experience and insights on the venture world landscape, what it takes to succeed in this field, and what the future holds for the industry in 2023. Chivan gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the tech investment landscape, the importance of warm referrals, the right time to approach UBC and the role of social media in building relationships. Don't miss this opportunity to learn from the best in the venture industry. Enjoy the show. Looks good to know. Then got it. It's live streamed. And then I have to find my way back to the uh, myriad of windows that are open. <laughs> and let's kick it off. Hi, Jevan. It's a really great uh, Chivan, what, what, what is the correct spelling of your name? I'm Austrian and I'm not very much used to British names still. No, no worries. Chivan. Uh, Chivan. Where, where is yes. the name coming from? Is it a typically English name? No, not at all. So my heritage is Punjabi. Um, so Punjab is it's a small state in the mm. uh, in the north of India. Um, so both on my both on both of my parents' side, my heritage is Punjabi. So it's a it's a traditional Punjabi name. It means life. Um, and my full okay. name, Sukhjivan, actually means happy life. That, that's a great name. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> happy life. Thank I you. Like it. I like it. I, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it, it really spells well. I was worried at the beginning when uh, when we got in touch. Uh, I thought, how should I spell your name? I just know the Austrian versions. And it's great to hear that uh, the correct meaning is happy life. It's it's it's. I, I quite like it. I think it's quite nice. How is you're in England currently? How is life in England these days? very cold so i'm just looking out my window right now and it's snowing we have about four inches of snow mm. um but otherwise it's um it's it's great we can't complain uh, we had a lovely summer um so now i suppose we're just paying paying that back mm. uh, i'm curious uh, to hear I mean it's the time of the year here in austria when everybody and families are uh, preparing for christmas eve in week how Does that affect the life in England? This is also a big thing in your environment. Um, absolutely. So um, at Playfair, we're shutting down the office uh, for a couple of weeks over Christmas just mm. to give everyone the time to shut down, um, switch off, really um, relax and get that full 
break before we come back in January um, and, and go again. So I think a lot of people are doing the same. Um, some of our startups are also doing the same thing as well. And I think it's just a really nice chance for everyone to get to spend a bit of time with family. Um, of course, London is a very diverse city. So a lot of people living in London either are from around the UK, whether that's uh, Cambridgeshire, which is where I'm where I'm based right now, or whether that's the north or even whether that's abroad. So um, I think it's quite a nice chance to give people the time to go back, spend time, spend a bit of time with their family, with their friends, um, relax for the period before coming back in January afresh. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's necessary to get two weeks off uh, to meet family and friends and uh, also enjoy the other parts of life except work life. But let's make this podcast about uh, work life, the final thing before Christmas. You <laughs> mentioned your fund, Playfair Capital, and uh, I'm really happy that you are here today to share your stories. Um, I'm coming from the founder side. So I started uh, my first attempt in entrepreneurship back in the 90s, uh, was then in merger acquisition. Then later on, got in life science in 2006 in mostly startup companies, so translating science into business. And usually when founders take the pitch deck and send it to a VC, everything that happens behind uh, the scene is pretty much a black box. And it's really great that you are happy today here to share your stories about what's going on in the VC life. And my first question to you is what does it take to become a VC? What's, what motivated you to go into this direction? Yeah, that's a great question. I think like a lot of people, it's super cliched, but I definitely fell into VC. It wasn't something that at the age of 15, I sat there and I thought my life ambition is to be a, uh, be, be a VC. Um, so very much fell into it. Um, I think for me, it was, uh, I was very much influenced by, by my family who are very entrepreneurial. So mm -hmm. Growing up, uh, my parents had um, brick and mortar businesses across retail or food and beverage or um, health and health and medical. And from the age of eight, I remember going around and um, spending time with them and getting to meet people that they worked with and getting to meet customers. Um, and I'm sure an element of it was cheap labor, of course, on my parents' behalf. But <laughs> they really encouraged me to think about You know, they used to ask my opinion. So when they'd say, oh, we're, we're thinking of trying this out, or we're thinking of optimizing this, you know, what do you think? And they really used to encourage me to have an opinion and to get involved. Um, and I, I really love that. And I think firsthand, I saw watching them and their journey, just how passionate and really obsessive people can get about the things that they're, that they're building. Um, they become almost like um, their, their, their babies, their children, like family members. Um, And so I've, I've always worked, I've always been around people, I suppose, through my family who have felt that way and who have, um, I suppose, had the self-belief mm. and um, self-belief, but also, also at times delusion to believe that they are the ones who are going to change something for the better. And they're not going to wait around for someone else to make that change happen, but they're going to make it happen themselves. And they believe in themselves and they back themselves to go and make that happen. Um, I found that very inspirational growing up. Um, and I suppose a lot of the founders that I work with nowadays are very much like that. They're mm -hmm. people who um, are obsessed, passionate, want to make a change, want to make a real life impact in the world. And they want to go make it themselves and they want to go do it yesterday. They don't want to wait around. And I find that energy just so inspiring. And I love 
being around that and I absorb that and it's infectious and um, I think it's just a it's a great environment to be around. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Um, what was your career path then? You got uh, your first imprint by your parents and uh, what, what came next? Yeah, so got that imprint, um, but still very much didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so I thought, you know, let me just do something that I'm good at. I always mm -hmm. enjoyed sciences. I was always a bit of a nerd when it came to the sciences. So I decided to go and study pharmacology at, at UCL. Um, spent a lot of time in and out of labs and uh, both healthcare and also clinical settings and pharma as well. Um, and I really loved the idea of being on the cutting edge of, of research. I like the idea of being involved in the uncovering of a new drug for a disease type that has impacted and, and um, hurt and caused pain to hundreds, thousands, millions of people. Uh, globally. So I, I love the idea of that. I love the idea of the of the innovation that was happening in pharmacology. Um, I, I especially loved uh, psychopharmacology. So um, anything to do with, I suppose, the central nervous system um, and particularly neurodegenerative diseases as well, I found very interesting. Um, the reality of it for me didn't quite match the theory. So the reality was, um, and this is very personal to me, Uh, was spending a lot of time in the lab. Mm. Uh, it was quite insular. It was very focused around one particular subject. And I didn't always feel like it was super commercial. So things worked in the lab and I struggled to see how that would scale mm. and impact real lives and the real world. And I suppose through that, over a number of years, I became somewhat disillusioned as a process. And even though I still love health tech. I do a, a huge amount of, kind of um, look into a lot of our health tech uh, deal flow at Playfair. Um, so it's still an area that I'm really interested in, but it's just not the area for me to spend the rest of my career personally. Yeah, I think it's... So, uh... Sorry to interrupt, okay. you, but, if, but I think it's, it's, the, it's the usual ratio. So uh, I, I wrote it down a couple of years ago that Basically, I think 99.9% of lab ideas don't translate into products later on. It's just the nature, I think, of science to have a lot of ideas, to publish a lot of or produce a lot of new know-how. Not necessarily everything must be a product at the end of the day. So it's a really fine line um, between uh, it's a small percentage of uh, of the ideas in the lab that translates into uh, later in yeah. products. Uh, what, what excites you the most in tech currently? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Um, that is a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think we're going through a massive change in VC, mm. but also with all these macroeconomics, uh, macroeconomic factors around us with um, all the change that's happening um, with 
the war and obviously off the back of the pandemic. I think there are a lot of really exciting trends coming off the back of that. I personally spend a lot of my time looking at, um, as I said, health tech, um, construction, materials. So for me, I'm I'm personally very interested in um, mental health and understanding how um, at a time where there is a shortage of therapists mm-hmm. um, and off the back of a pandemic, which we know has caused increased um, levels of mental health issues in people. Um, I'm really interested to see how technology can improve that. Um, I'm really interested to spend a bit more time understanding how we can uh, make materials more sustainable and how we can uh, deal with shortages of materials. So uh, again, during the pandemic, but even off the back of the pandemic, um, there was a, a real a real shortage of some of our um, some of the things that we, we we had very much taken for granted in construction or in roads and mobility um, and understanding how we can become more self-sufficient, but also in a sustainable way. I think that's that's super interesting as well. Um, and then I suppose, you know, generally we look at, uh, we're, we're, we're super early stage, right? So we're pre-seed and seed. And so I always say that we see things almost before the, the public even hear about them. Uh, we're almost three, four, five years ahead of the trends. And our founders are like, you know, two, three, four years ahead of us in that sense, which is really cool. And so a lot of the stuff that we're seeing right now are um, generative AI in the use of gaming or, mm-hmm. um, you know, we see it a lot in, in relation to Web3, for example. So I'm quite interested to see how, how that plays out, um, quantum computing, of course, and just um, the, the the super the uh, the way supercomputers are going and the applications of that and how that will change the way that we live and work. I think that's super interesting. Um, and I suppose there's a lot of volatility still in the blockchain crypto space. So still don't know which way that's going to go. It's very much on the fence and. Um, very curious to see where where that lands in the next year or so, um, and and just to continue following that uh, that mm-hmm. market as well. You're pretty deep into into investing uh, here. You have a lot of ideas and see a lot of things. I mean, the blockchain. There were some un unlucky uh, events lately. So uh, let's see where that goes. Um, let's talk about the socio-political topics first. Um, in my environment, I get a lot of articles on my table about uh, tech venture capital and that there are not many women in that area. Not very many, uh, So it's basically, a, from what I read on the internet, a male-dominated um, environment. And I would like to ask you the question, is it really that way? Uh, but what is the reality in, in your environment? Are there Should there be more women in tech? Short answer is yes, <laughs> very much so. Um, there's been lots of data and reports on mm. this. I think Sifted did an article earlier this year. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but I think the number was um, in the te- in the tens of how many women we have in decision-making abilities mm. in VC. That's a massive issue. If women don't have a voice at IC level, at partner level, um, we are those unconscious biases that we always talk about in relation to female founders become amplified in 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 my view um and it's not just in relation to female founders but more generally different people from different backgrounds um different genders bring a different viewpoint 
And around a table, around an IC, you want as diverse a viewpoint as possible so that you've considered every option, you've explored um, things that maybe your colleagues have missed and to not have uh, women equally represented when women form half of the world's population, you're missing a lot of a lot of viewpoints. You're missing a voice at the at the table. You're missing opinions that could be valuable, um, and not just in relation to topics that relate to women, but everything. Because, as I said, if women form half of the world's population, then um, most most things that impact um, uh, men will also impact women as well. So. I think it's a massive issue. I think it's a massive issue in VC. Um, of course, it's a massive issue on the founder side as well. And it's uh, very well reported that um, one to 3%, uh, depending on the report you read, uh, generally goes to all female founder teams. So that, mm. of course, is a massive issue as well. Um, but actually, even if you go all the way back on the LP side as well, um, you see that same uh, gender divide as well. So there is a, a disproportionate number of um, of uh, men in decision-making roles on the LP side. And so suddenly you see this chain where that starts at the LP level, that flows down to the VC level, that flows down to the founder level. And across that chain, you can see that there is a real lack of female representation. Um, and in my view, that's that's a, that's a problem that we have to look inward and we have to think as an industry about how we're, how we're going to solve that. How are we going to um, attract more women? How are we going to nurture more women in this ecosystem? How are we going to bring them up so we don't just have women joining um, and then leaving after a couple of years? Um, how do we retain them? How do we um, and you know how do we do that across the entire chain? I think that's a that's a that's a real conversation that we should be having as an industry because um, it, it's it's a failing on on our part in my view. I mean, um, I'm happy that the society evolved since 1900. So we have a lot of more uh, opportunities these days than uh, my grand grandparents uh, back then. What are the reasons, in your opinion, why why there is a lack of women in VC? VCs? What, what what is the main problem? Why why did that happen? Mm, there's a number of reasons. Um, firstly, the at, at the source of it, the um, are proportionally less uh, female as STEM graduates. Mm. So less women are choosing um, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics um, as a future career path. And so um, if the majority of VCs come from that background, um, well, actually, you're not having women typically come and mm -hmm. study and, and, and move up and even see VC as a, as a career route. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is um, it's a, a, a somewhat cultural thing. Um, if VC is seen from the outside to be a bit of a boys club and it seems to be very male dominated, um, actually just attracting people who look different, sound different um, might be difficult. It, it might be off-putting to people who actually want to be in a place where they can see people who look like them and talk like them. Uh, I think the third thing also linked with that is um, the lack of senior women in VC uh, means less mentorship from people, again, who look like you and talk like you. Um, mm. People who can advocate for you, champion you and give that advice and give that support in a way that maybe other people might not quite understand because they've not had the same experiences as you. Um, 
I think those are kind of the in my view the the, the key three things. Um, but to be honest, I'm 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 already in the industry, so I, I I suppose what I'd love to hear from are people who aren't people who are either aspiring VCs or people who have never considered VC as a career route, and I'd love to understand from them why why not. Why is it that what 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 are the barriers to getting into the industry? What are they struggling with? Um, and I think actually that's 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 how we start. We start by um, uh, looking outward and saying, you know, what's going wrong here? Mm. Um, otherwise, we um, I think are at risk of having almost a a positive reinforcement by um, asking the people who have already drunk the Kool Aid and who are already uh, luckily uh, doing what they want to be doing. Um, let's assume um, a ferry crosses your way and gives you the ability to change one thing to attract more women or to have more women in, in the venture world. What would this one thing be that you choose? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health and beyond. Together they unpack the secrets to not just surviving but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. It's a really good question. It's also, the problem is it's a cycle because the more women you have in the industry, I feel like the more women you would naturally attract in the industry mm. um and it's a bit of a cop-out to say to have more women um <laughs> so yeah it's a bit of a cop-out to say have more women in the industry um if there's one thing that i change it's it'd be on the lp level it mm. would be lps um making real active decisions about the team composition in the vcs that they are backing um It's, it's LP saying it's not okay for you to not have a woman in a decision-making role in your, in your team. And we, 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 we don't think that is a sensible business decision and therefore we can't back that. And if the people holding the ultimate power uh, were really putting their foot down and standing strong against that, I feel like that would have a trickle down effect on a lot of VCs who then have to, to some extent, enforce some of that in order to be able to go out and fundraise, raise their rounds, uh, raise their funds, sorry, um, and be able to get LPs on side. So that's probably the one thing that I'd change if I could. I think it's a great idea. I was just thinking about uh, risk-taking. I think having a balanced team um, of, of men and women in a fund makes absolutely sense in terms of risk. I believe men usually tend to make too risky bets And uh, I think it's just statistics. Yeah? It's, uh, 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 the statistics I read say that when it comes to investing, basically on the long run, women are better than men. So it's uh, less risky in the funds then. 
I have, I have seen that. I've not dug into the data around that, yeah. but I've seen the headline and I'm happy to go with that. <laughs> I, I, I know it from my life. So it's uh, sometimes it's good to speak with women um, to get talked out of the stupid decisions. So it's uh, <laughs> men like taking risk. Let's let's jump to the topic of the, the, the podcast. What happens behind the scenes um, when a founder pushes the button and sends the pitch deck to a VC? Uh, I mean, when we look at, uh, when we give it a narcissistic angle, I think the founder then thinks I sent now the pitch deck and the team at the venture fund sits there doing nothing, waiting for the one pitch deck arrive. And then they get the pitch deck and they happily contact the founder because they didn't have anything to do. What's the reality um, of, of a VC? How does the normal day look like? Mm -hmm. So the reality starting with the pitch deck coming in is firstly, where does the pitch deck come from, unfortunately? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we know that in VC, we have a problem around, um, around, you know, warm referrals and warm intros through networks, which can often mean that if you are someone who is in that network, it can be easier statistically to get in front of a VC than someone who isn't. So I suppose the first thing as a founder to think about is, how are you reaching out to the VC? Is it a uh, is it a cold outreach on mm. um, on on LinkedIn? Is it a generic message, or is it actually something that you've really thought about how you're going to uh, come across to them? Whether that's sending a really personalized message on social media, whether that's trying to find a connection through mutual friends, um, whether that's trying to go places that you know that the VC is going to be, whether it's an event or a panel session. Uh, whether that's taking part in a pitching event that you know that the VC is going to be part of the panel of that pitching event, it really differs in terms of where where that where that interaction happens. Unfortunately, um, so I mean at Playfair, we've we've actually really tried to address that and change that. So we have a um, open type form on our website. Any founder from anywhere can come and um, upload their deck on our website. And two members of our team to to ensure that we um, have an, slightly some objectivity baked into the decision making. Two members of the team will go through the pitch deck and decide whether we're going to follow up with the founder. And the purpose of that is to really get around this issue of um, of, of uh, selection bias if that introduction or that pitch deck comes from one single source. Um, so yeah, at Playfair, we're, we're, we're trying to we're trying to change that. Um, but yeah, unfortunately that that's generally what happens. Um, and then I suppose it's just a case of whether, um, the investor in the 15 slides that they have in front of them, um, can see enough to decide whether to take a call. And really that is the aim of, of a pitch deck. Um, it's not to convince, it's not to show and showcase your entire business in 15 slides. The, the, the purpose and the aim of a pitch deck is simply to get that first call with the VC. And it's to give them enough information to go on to get that first call. Um, there's loads of uh, uh, articles, blogs, resources online about how to create the perfect pitch deck. So I, w I won't go into that, uh, go into that today. Uh, there are two questions um, that I would like to ask you now. I mean, uh, you, you answered the second already that we don't go into uh, how to structure a pitch deck. I have also a video on my YouTube channel with uh, a woman who consults um, uh, startups uh, up to IPO level, how to structure that. So there's enough information on that. But the, sec the second question that I would like to 
ask you is um, a debate that I'm having now for 16 years. And mm -hmm. there are always these two opinions on the market. So one says founders should start building relationships to VCs before they need the money. So they should invest their time, go to events, uh, get to know the VCs, understand the story. And the other uh, school of thought is uh, don't do that. Uh, just approach VCs when you need money. Uh, mm -hmm. when it needs the capital. What's your opinion on that? What is the best way for founders to get in touch with VCs? Should they wait until they really need capital, until they have an investment case? Or should they start earlier or anything in between? Yeah, the age, age. Hi, do you enjoy this episode? Then take a quick break and show your support. Hit the like button to show you're enjoying this episode. And if you haven't already, Make sure to subscribe to the channel to stay updated on all our latest content. Your support helps the team to reach more people who can benefit from the insights of our speakers. Leave a comment to let us know what you think and help the team create even better content exclusively for you. Thank you for being a part of this community short question um <laughs> <laughs> what was I first think... chicken or egg <laughs> <laughs> uh so what do i recommend my founders do when i'm working with them on a fundraise is uh to start making soft um connections and at least start having calls with investors 12 to 18 months out of the fundraise in order to start building a warm pipeline of investors that you can go and you can message when you do go on to, to launch your fundraise. Um, that can be really distracting. That can take up a lot of time during a time that a founder just wants to put their head down and focus on the business. So my suggestion is always go for a coffee, have a half an hour call with, an, with, with the fund, sell the vision, sell the dream, get them excited, and then let them know that you will get in touch with them when you go on to launch the fundraise. Because if you're not fundraising, there is no value in spending hours with a fund in in um, at a time where you're not you're not you're not raising and at a time that you're 12 months out from your next raise. So have that call, put them on the warm investor list, send them updates on a monthly or quarterly basis to keep them excited and to keep them up to date with what's happening. Um, and then by the time you do go out to fundraise, you have hopefully a list of investors that you've already engaged that are already somewhat excited that are up to date with what you're building. And you can just start, start your fundraise with that level of momentum. And instead of going out to the market cold, you've got 10, 15, 20, 25 funds that you can go to. Um, and that really helps get the ball rolling as you're filling up the pipeline. And that's literally how I think of a fundraise, almost as a pipeline of other funds um, and to really start getting those conversations going. So that's what I would recommend doing. Um, what I instead see founders quite often do is, um, you know, th that, that approach almost falls in the middle of the, of the two scenarios that you gave. Mm -hmm. And what I instead see is founders actually being quite binary about how they go about this approach. So either they'll talk to no investors and then suddenly they'll go and decide to do a launch a fundraise and they've not spoken to an investor in 18 months, or if they've bootstrapped, they've never spoken to an investor. And so um, they don't know what um, what a, a good or acceptable round size for the metrics that they have and the point that they are in their company lifecycle looks like because they've not 
had those conversations with investors or they've not practiced their uh, their storytelling, which is super important when you're going through a, a fundraise. Um, that's one end of the, the scale. And then right on the other end of the scale is founders that spend hours and hours and hours in their week speaking to investors and getting pulled into conversations and sometimes even getting pulled into a process with investors at a time that they don't want to be and at a time where it's not the best use of their time because they should be focusing on the product or they should be focusing on customers or other opportunities. So as with everything else, these things aren't binary. So don't be binary uh, and find a good middle ground where you can take elements of both and make it work for you. It's great advice, great advice. Um, uh, I like it. Um, when I look at, at your day, so reaching out to investors, I think it also helps understanding how the day of an investor looks like, uh, how you split up your day. Uh, how does how does your usual day at Playfair Capital look like? Um, good question. So I um, will caveat this initially by saying that we are a single LP fund. So we don't fundraise from external LPs. Um, and straight away, that is what uh, a, a, an investor normally at a fund would spend anything from 10 to 30 to 50 percent of their time doing, depending on where they are in the fund life cycle, either actively fundraising or closing out a fund or reporting to LPs. So we don't do any of that, which is great and usually um, the source of envy from some of my friends in, in VC. Um, so what do I spend my time doing? So I, I really roughly uh, split my day into um, working on new investments, uh, portfolio and everything else. So the first bit, I'd say I probably spend about 70% of my time on new investments. Mm -hmm. So that is everything from sourcing, um, taking pitch meetings, um, doing deep dives into certain markets or industries or companies, uh, writing memos, preparing for IC, doing ICs, um, creating term sheets, um, doing legals, going through negotiations. And that entire process really is, is the bulk of my, my, my day. Um, and depending on where I am with a particular company, I'll be at different points of the process. So there are some weeks where um, I might have 30 first calls and I was that 70% will solely be first calls and it will solely be at the sourcing part. It'll be at the very early part of that, that process. Um, there are some weeks where I'm pushing a, an investment opportunity forward. And so most of that 70% is spent on writing a memo and doing diligence and preparing for IC. And I might still have a couple of first calls back in the, in the sourcing or the first call part of the process. But most of my energy and most of my time and resources really being spent on getting obsessed with this one company. Um, it can be quite difficult to shift between the two because the two have completely different mindsets. Um, one requires you to uh, be very open and mm. uh, very inquisitive and to learn. Um, and the other requires a level of depth and diligence and attention to detail and focus. Um, I quite like going in between the two, so I quite like doing both. But I think I always think it's... Um, what sometimes maybe founders don't always appreciate is um, you might be meeting an investor when they're at, um, they're about to take a company to IC tomorrow or the day after. Um, and so an element of their brain space, an element of their energy is focusing 
naturally because you're somewhat emotionally invested at that point of the process in how's that IC going to go? How can I prepare for that IC? Am I missing anything? Is there anything I've not thought about? And it's just always worth uh, having in the back of your mind that similar to a founder um, where you have so many different things going on, even this investment process for an investor can mean that you're in completely different uh, states, um, mentally or physically in in, in every way. Um, So that's 70% probably of my week. Mm -hmm. I'd say probably the remaining majority of like the 30% is uh, portfolio. So I sit on four boards um, currently. Um, at Playfair, um, we are a very uh, high conviction, low volume fund. So we make six to eight investments a year. And the reason for that is we like to preserve time, resource, um, capital to spend with our companies post-investment. So every investor at Playfair um, generally holds a maximum of six to eight uh, board seats at any time. Um, and the reason for that is so that we can focus and we can dedicate ourselves as investors to our companies post-investment. So the four companies that I work with, um, you know, I, I might spend time helping them with their fundraise or helping them with their financial model or preparing for board meetings or going to board meetings uh, or helping them with hiring and taking some interviews for them. Um, it, it, it can really be, it can be really, really be anything. Um, and so a lot of that is very ad hoc. Um, but generally I'd probably say about 30% of my time spent on that. Um, and then there's kind of everything else, which I've not really accounted for, but a lot of funds, early stage funds, particularly, um, are probably made up of teams of five to 10 people. And so in a way that they're almost startups themselves, they're almost small companies Mm -hmm. themselves. So then there's everything else. There's the brand building and the network building, making sure that founders out there know that they can come to Playfair when they are raising funds and they know who we are. There are the, the, the network building bit, which is meeting investors who could be a good potential fit to follow on in some of our portfolio companies. Um, there's, all, the, 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 there's all sorts of ad, ad hoc stuff that takes time and energy um, that is more about being an ecosystem player um, our female founder office hours events, for example, take a huge mm-hmm. amount of time to organize. Um, but we feel like that's really important to support female founders and to just be a really, really good ecosystem player with the view that if you do good things and you make connections with people and you're a valuable player in the market, that good things come back to you. And it doesn't necessarily need to be transactional. Those things don't need to happen tomorrow. You know, you don't do to get, but actually you do because you want to in the good faith that things will come back to you at some point. And I think that's quite a nice way to, <laughs> that's quite a nice way to be. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. So I understand that the play for capital approach is being more an, um, let's call it active investor and help their founders moving forward, also creating connections to other funds. And it's less like a passive investor that just uh, throws money into a company and waits a couple of years until something comes out. Did it get the right understanding? Very much. Yeah, very much. And 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 I don't and I don't um every fund has their own way of doing things, right? And they have their own thesis. And um, you know, if you look at the power law of VC, actually it makes sense for early stage funds to 
been making lots of bets um, in considering just how risky early stage is with the chance that one or two or three might go on to, to, to have, a, have a substantial exit. So I suppose our model is really adopting a later stage model, almost like a Series A style model and applying it to the early stage. Um, I suppose with the confidence and the belief that uh, our diligence means that we're spending that little bit more time with founders and we're able to mm. pick out the better opportunities. And then equally, the post-investment time that we spend, um, we hope makes, um, even, even if it makes the slightest difference in optimizing that company's chance um, of, of building a successful business, we, we, we feel that's worthwhile. Um, so yeah, I, I suppose our model very much goes against the, the kind of typical early stage way, way of investing. Um, but also, it's just a lot more fun. <laughs> it's just, it's just, right? It's just so much more fun. Like, um, I, I, I absolutely love the work that I do with my portfolio companies. Mm. Um, it's genuinely what energizes me. Um, the founders that I work with, I am so inspired by them, and I learn so much from them. And I hope they learn from me, but I learn from I, I learn so much from them. Um, so. I think I'd struggle to be at a fund where uh, we're super hands-off because I think that's the part that to some extent I enjoy the most. No, I think it's definitely helpful for the founders uh, to have uh, a sounding board or to have a VC who really helps moving the company forward and also is active on the market, building relations to follow-on investors, for example. It also takes a lot of burden off the founders so they can then really focus on moving the company forward and having a trustworthy VC in their board. Um, what I struggle with sometimes is the many job titles that uh, are in the VC world. So grew up basically in the 80s and 90s and uh, the hierarchy was pretty much flat. So you had uh, the executive board and then directors and then everybody else. Mm -hmm. And when I look at funds, uh, there are a lot of different job titles in that. Can we shine a bit of light on uh, what the roles mean in, in your fund? Yeah. So um, at our fund... Um, everyone does everything. So we like to see um, ourselves having a very flat structure. Mm -hmm. So absolutely everyone sources, everyone takes first calls, mm -hmm. um, everyone everyone pretty much does everything, um, which is great. And it's really good for learning and um, it's a really good opportunity for everyone to um, experience every part of being an investor to become a well-rounded investor instead of you know, just focusing um, on, on, on just one one area. Um, I'd say the biggest difference is um, that the investors that have been in the team for longer or have been investors longer naturally um, will have more portfolio responsibilities. So um, Chris, um, our managing partner, um, I think has, God, I've forgotten off the top of my head, but probably seven or eight, uh, portfolio companies that he's actively working with, which is a lot. So um, he absolutely takes first calls and he sources and he's super involved in all of that. Um, but he naturally will spend a little bit more time on that on the on the portfolio side because of the companies that he works with. Um, and then the flip might be for um, the team that are uh, newest newest to the fund. Um, so that's that's how it works at Playfair. Um, I think it really depends fund by fund. And I always say to founders that it's important for you to understand what the fund structure is at the fund that you're talking to. So there are loads of funds that have a similar approach to Playfair, where everyone that you speak to um, 
is likely to have a uh, a, a voice at the table. Um, that's great. Um, that makes things nice and easy. Um, there are other funds where you might be speaking to, and it's typically more junior members of the team, mm-hmm. and they're super excited and they're really passionate and they're championing the company internally. But ultimately, they don't have, they're not part of the IC. They don't have that decision-making power. So their enthusiasm is not necessarily an accurate representation of the enthusiasm of the IC, who are the ones that will decide whether that fund invests in your company or not. Mm -hmm. And so that can sometimes be quite misleading because I'll I'll have founders who say, I've been talking to so-and-so for weeks and they're really excited. And my first question would always be, you know, well, where, what, how, how does it work? You know, who has the decision-making abilities at the fund, and how how does that pro, how does the IC process work? Because that will give us a good idea of how the fund feels, and whether what that investor feels, and whether what the fund feel are aligned, or whether they're not. Um, having said that, I think sometimes founders can also go the opposite way and um, underestimate the influence of junior team members as well at mm-hmm. funds where there is a hierarchy and and structure. Um, Junior team members have typically more time and they have more energy and um, uh, will spend longer trying to understand the thesis of of your business and they might have more time to dig into the market size and do research on the competitive landscape and ultimately time to just get to that point where they are excited about your business in a way that perhaps the partner that you're trying to get in front of might not have that time. And so having that opportunity to impress someone and someone being open and receptive to it, who then goes into the company internally and gets everyone else excited about it, Mm. that's great, right? That's someone saying that I'm going to champion you. I'm going to sell you to my IC and to my fund. That's really valuable as well. Yeah, I think this is is absolutely an important point that you mentioned to um find a partner or um a team member in a venture fund who's really excited about the opportunity basically it's selling it's it, it's a selling job and exactly. it's, it, it's not something that you just throw the pitch deck on the table and say okay now pick it up and invest so it's finding the person who really clicks with the idea this is i think really exactly. a, a key point that's often missed and it, it, when i read through books i think it, uh, I, I rarely see that in a in a book in a description to just look how people react to your opportunity 100%. At the end of the day, this is a people business. We're mm. humans. <laughs> and um, the investor that you're talking to is a is a person. And you want to get them personally excited about what you're building so that they then can get excited or see an opportunity to invest in the company. That That's, that's step one. That's emotional engagement. That's emotional excitement. Um, and quite often I see some of the best founders, um, at least the founders that are really good at fundraising have extremely high EQ that people who can pick up on cues and they pick up Mm. what people are motivated by, what people are excited by, and they're able to tap into that and say, okay, well, let me tell you more of this. (laughs) Um, or they're able to look at a team and they're able to say, well, that's the person who's covering this sector or that's the person that's most interested in the space that I'm working in. So I'm going to go after them. And that's a really smart strategic way of doing Mm -hmm. it. Because instead of going to someone who despises health tech, you want to go find someone who lives for health tech. Um, 
And it's not hard to do that. If you go on someone's LinkedIn or if you go on the team page on their website, it will probably say whether they're interested in health tech or not. So I think doing that little bit of work and doing that bit of research and homework, as well as really tapping into the emotional cues of how people are engaging with you, just gives you such a good read on the right person that you should be speaking to and the right person that you should be um, pushing in order to get that meeting or get that follow-up meeting. And okay. yeah, sometimes maybe founders forget that. These are um, basically two important learnings here. So one is uh, getting to know the people, getting to know, understanding also their emotional cues. What are they interested in? What drives them? What motivates them? And I think the the second important part is doing the due diligence on a fund as well. So finding out uh, what what is the area of interest of the fund? How is the fund set up? Does the fund has have money? Instead of wasting time and just uh, going through a list of 100 VCs and uh, pushing a standard email on somebody's table? Yeah, I, I, I think I understand that it can be quite difficult to do some of that research. So VC is typically a, an opaque industry. If you go on the website of most funds, they are not going to tell you if they are actively fundraising or mm. not right now. Um, they're not going to tell you if they're in between funds. And the, the first close is happening in Q1 next year. And there's many reasons for that. Um, but they're not, you know, getting that information is, is pretty tough. Um, you can only work with what you have, but through social media and through VCs becoming more and more content driven, you actually do have a good amount to work with, or at least a lot more than founders 20 years would have had to work with. You do know what investments a particular investor has made before. Um, you, you, you can figure out what type of sectors and industries and spaces they're really interested in. Um, and VC investors are increasingly building more of a personal brand outside of the fund brand, again, through social media. So suddenly a fund doesn't necessarily mean um, the individual. There might be an individual within that fund who's super passionate about what you're building. Mm -hmm. And you ideally want to go find that person. You want to find the best person possible within that fund to be speaking to. Um, and I think treating every single investor within a fund as an individual with different interest areas different things that they get excited about, different areas of passion, instead of just seeing them as a fund, can optimize your chance of getting in front of the right person. And if you can optimize that, you can optimize the chance of getting them excited, which can then optimize the chance of you getting funding. And these are the little, little things that really make a difference in the long term. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I like the role social media plays these days. When I think back in the 90s, it was really difficult to look inside a company. and uh, get an understanding of what drives and motivates people inside. Now we have, for example, LinkedIn and LinkedIn is a great tool when people post content um, to get a better understanding about the right fit. Uh, do we have the same beliefs? Do we share the same ideas? Do we have the same vision? And it's much better. How do you see the role of social media these days in in, uh, in investing? I think it's massive. It's, it's yeah, I, I spend a stupid amount of time. On <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. Um, I, I use LinkedIn on like a Friday evening and the weekend. Um, I'm, I'm on it all the time. Um, it's replaced Instagram for me. <laughs> um, I think that LinkedIn has allowed 
it's just made the world in a way a lot bigger, but at the time a lot more, a lot smaller. It's made people, um, it's made investors in Silicon Valley accessible to some extent. Um, it's, it, it gives you a platform, a scalable platform to share your views with thousands of founders at once in a way that you would never have the opportunity or the time or the resource to do on a one-on-one level. So the communication, the accessibility, the relationship building, um, the information sharing, all of that is super powerful um, in an industry that's all geared around making connections. <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. Let me, let me ask you, sorry to interrupt you, let me ask you one question, uh, another question to the role of social media. Uh, you also mentioned that you have a podcast it's called when unicorns unicorns fly um what's your opinion on podcasting in this industry does it make sense to come on podcasts uh to, to speak uh to people and post content in video, video content on the internet or is it not so necessary does it make a difference i mean i'm here today so <laughs> <laughs> i'm i I'm already a believer. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had I had my own podcast for mm. um, for uh, a year and a half called When Unicorns Fly, and the purpose was to bring um, valuable content to early stage founders from subject matter experts across marketing or PR or legals or different functional uh, industries. I absolutely love podcasts. I, I think it's a really easy way of being able to share content and again, get access to people that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. Um, super scalable, high impact um, for the people that are engaged at least. Um, I think podcast listeners, real podcast listeners are some um, can, be, can be really dedicated. And if you can build that following, you can get, you can build a really good audience of, uh, of, of people who are interested um, in receiving that content. Um, but I also just think if you're trying to reach people who are already really busy, time strapped, cash strapped, um, three podcast episodes for half an hour, 45 minutes an hour, it's a really easy way for people to just slot that into their lives. Or it's a lot easier than the commitment of picking up a 500 page book and deciding to try and get through that. So yeah, I, I think the distribution, um, the accessibility, the the scalability of, of podcasts is really cool. Um, and just on a personal level, I I listen to a lot of podcasts myself. I which one um, do you listen to? <laughs> which ones? Um, I'm a massive fan of Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the guests that he gets on are great. He does a lot of research before he does the episodes and goes in really really deep. And I think some podcasts can be slightly superficial in the type of kind of the level that they 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 remain at so i think i love just how deep he goes um <laughs> i always say my guilty pleasure is uh the diary of a ceo uh, ah, yeah, which is run, um which is run by stephen bartlett uh, um a, a uk uh based entrepreneur and, and investor um i just think again that the quite the caliber of guests that he gets on i just think are great so i particularly love all the founder uh episodes and um he's had some he's had some really cool people on there um and then, yeah, I, I, I kind of, I really enjoy some of the, the uh, non-VC related ones as well, or the non-entrepreneurial ones. So, um, you know, some of the, the podcast series, the, uh, the, the nine episode series, 
uh, whether it's journalism or true crime, which is a personal favorite of mine, um, or just understanding different industries. So my partner's really into music. He's an absolute music head. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I love just, just hearing about what's happening in other industries as well. And I think, again, podcast is a really, is a, a really low barrier to entry almost. You just go on Spotify, you subscribe. Um, that commitment isn't really needed in the same way. So big fan of podcasts personally. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. That's why I have a podcast, I guess. <laughs> um, what I like in podcasting these days is uh, like having a conversation with you, for example, a couple of years ago, it was basically impossible uh, to meet virtually. So I think 10 or 15 years ago, because the technology didn't simply exist. And finding out the belief set of another person was uh, really hard work. And to see, is it really a great fit? Does it make sense to put people together in a team? Because basically VCs and founders are a team for several years. It's like a marriage, Mm -hmm. basically. And today, when you get on a podcast, we can have a one and a half hour conversation. I can share it on the internet. And everybody who is interested in Playfair Capital and uh, thinks maybe you might be the best investor for a company can just click into the episode get a feeling for you, get uh, a better understanding of what motivates you and then can decide, does it make sense to reach out or are we completely on a on, on, on two different planets? Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. 100% 100% I always say that founder founder investor or founder fund fit is so important mm-hmm. um and I, I can understand that when you're trying to raise um for your company and your runway might be six months nine months you're probably thinking god why would I care about founder investor fit I need cash and um smart capital is great <laughs> but you know it is kind of is what it is and how useful are VCs anyway um but in reality this is going to be someone who's with you on that journey um, they might join your board, which is where all of the strategic levels on that com- of that company should really happen. Um, they're going to have a massive impact on the direction of your business. Um, if they're a good investor, you're going to want their direction. You're going to want their advice and their support. So absolutely taking the time to do your due diligence on the investor as well and understanding whether their values are aligned with your values and whether you see that 5, 10, 15 year partnership happening um, and whether that enthuses you or actually <laughs> fills you with dread uh, tells you a lot about whether you actually want to work with them, right? And I always encourage founders to do that. No, it's also, I agree to what you said. It's also my recommendation when uh, founders are uh, young as an entrepreneur, not necessarily in age, um, select uh, a fund. It's just, as I always say, you will work with that fund probably for the rest of your life. So the connections that you create now, you will also have in 10 years. So really choose wisely and not just because of capital. And having said that, my next question to you is the expectations and managing the expectations between funds and founders. Um, What do you expect from your founders? 
Is it just that you want to throw your capital in and say, uh, okay, that's it, come back in five years and bring me 10x back? <laughs> <laughs> well, what are your expectations to founders? Um, that's a really big question. <laughs> um, open question. <laughs> open question. I think, so there's, I'd split it almost into two ways. One is mm -hmm. outcomes and outputs, and the other is working styles and how you, how you work together. So outputs and outcomes, of course, I wouldn't have invested in that company if I didn't see a VC scale exit or return at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. So that is what I go in hoping for. It's not necessarily what I go in expecting because I'm realistic and I appreciate that I sit in early stage VC, which is high risk and um, predicting what's going to happen in 10 years time um, would would um, make me, a, I don't know, a, a reader of the future. So, um, which I'm definitely not. So anything can happen. Um, mm -hmm. and so when it comes to the outcome, uh, the outcomes and the outputs, really, it's just, it's a journey with many processes, with many milestones. Let's break it down. Whether we want to break it down in terms of what the product roadmap and the product development is going to be to get to that end vision of where the product should be or whether it's looking at commercial, uh, our commercial success as a proxy of our growth, whether that's revenue or engagement or customers or users, or whether that's fundraising. And each fundraise round is almost uh, a milestone. And we say we're going to break the journey down in that way. However, that happens, as long as, the as long as we trust in the process and as long as we're building a good process and we have the right milestones and we're tracking whether we're on track and we're doing something if we're not on track, the outcome will take care of itself. And at the end of the day, all we can do is try. <laughs> there are true. so many things that are outside of the hands of the founder and a little bit of luck is needed as well. Um, but as long as you, you create that framework and you follow that framework and you flag if you're struggling and you get help when you need help and you get support when you need support, that will almost take care of itself. So My expectation is definitely not that every single company I work with will become a billion pound company. That's unrealistic and would mean that Playfair has the best um, portfolio in, in, in the history of uh, venture capital globally, which would be great. But <laughs> it, it, I think you have it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's, that's one part. And then the other part is how do you work together with the founder as a fund, as an investor? And on that side, again, I, I'm really open to how the founder wants to work with us. So um, we have second time, third time founders in our portfolio who have been there, done it. They've made other mistakes. They want capital. They want our help. They know what they want our help on. But otherwise, they very much just want to crack on, do their thing, um, get moving. Absolutely fine. We're not going to get in the way. We're not going to slow you down. We're not going to stop you. We're not going to make you take help if you don't need it or if it's going to get in the way. That's fine. Um, but equally for the founders that are maybe first-time founders or do want more help and do want their investors to be more hands-on um, and have the ethos of why would you turn down free help? <laughs> um, we want to be there for them. And we want to have time, resource dedicated to be there for them. Um, and so for them, I always just ask at the outset, you know, how do you want us to work together, right? Like mm -hmm. this is a working relationship. How active do you want us to be? Where do you want support? What are the areas that you want support? And 
having that conversation at the outset sets the expectations from their side and our side on what they want from us and what we want from them. Um, and I'll put my hands up and say that I've not always done that. There have been times where I've worked with founders and I've not had that conversation at the outset. And it only makes, it only delays the inevitable conversation, which is let's sit down and align and set expectations and decide how we're going to work together. Um, so nowadays I, I, I try to do it at the outset, right at the very beginning, um, and just set the solid foundations and start things as you mean to go on in the strongest way possible. Now that's a very clever, clever move to uh, manage the expectations before people start to work uh, rather than uh, in between. I think it clarifies mm -hmm. a lot of uh, problems early on that later on, as you said, uh, naturally appear. I met founders who said they would like to have a hands-on VC so mm -hmm. that the VC gets really involved into the business, which I think is probably more on the business angel side, my personal opinion. Uh, the bigger the funds become, the bigger the portfolio becomes. I think it's uh, naturally that also a venture fund is a company by itself. So it, it's mm -hmm. also internal management. And um, I'm more from the side of the same. I mean, I like to have a VC as a board member, as a moral compass. Uh, when I just look at what's happening now in the world with FTX, for example, where I, when I go through the news, where I very often see that there was absolutely no oversight. So uh, when I read through the headlines, I would say, having a VC on board who makes aware of uh, where the fine line sometimes is. That's in a startup that's really creative and building something new. It's sometimes really difficult to figure that out. Um, absolutely makes sense. Mm -hmm. When I think about the... I don't, I, I, I don't think... I was going to say, I don't think there was a fine line with FTX. I think they saw the line and just decided to... <laughs> yeah, this, this, jump, is, um, this is something for the courts it. to decide. So I, I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not in the legal part. But there's, a, there's probably fraud involved so happy 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 yeah, absolutely but I, I think to your point 100 and um being a vc doesn't um having a good relationship doesn't necessarily mean that every conversation that you have is going to be an easy conversation it's not always mm. patting someone on the back and saying great job i mean you hope it is but that's not reality the reality is that you want an independent person objective person who challenges you in a healthy way gives you another opinion, challenges at the right time and steps back at the right time um, and gives you that advice when you need it or where you ask from it, um, but doesn't, isn't, isn't a yes person, isn't someone who's um, afraid to voice their opinion to you. Um, and that's the type of person that you're looking for. And that's, um, that's quite difficult. That takes years for people to build that, that, yeah. that right balance of getting all of those attributes. Um, and I think the easy route is sometimes to find someone who says, I'm hands off. I'm not going to join your board. I won't, I won't be that present. Um, and that that's great. That might be what you're looking for. Um, but healthy challenge and a sounding board, um, someone who's engaged and wants to be there and is easy to get hold of is the exact opposite of someone who's just, I'm passive, I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> no, when I'm, in, so, when I'm in, a, in a board role, I think um, what I need less is having a friend in a board meeting. I would rather uh, have someone, uh, let's say a sparring partner, who mm -hmm. is giving me the punchy, punches in a board meeting uh, rather than letting me 
run into an open life so when people see that so i think this is what you mentioned is uh getting challenges getting challenged by by the investors is really a great thing absolutely and we can be friends when we go for a pint after <laughs> after the board meeting and we can catch up on on life and everything else but um in that in that time it's not personal it's you want someone who as you said gives that gives that healthy challenge and becomes mm. that sparring partner but in a, in a positive way in a way yeah. that you're all growing um and as a sum of your parts you're stronger and you're better rather than working as individuals but sometimes to also have someone who's pointing in the right direction and say okay this is your north star because there's yeah. a lot of noise in companies employees customers suppliers everything is coming to back together the company is growing and it's really easy to get sucked into the daily business and just forget about the mission and having the board meeting who really yeah. brings the team back and say look guys this is your mission focus on your mission move the company forward is great help when we talk Absolutely. about the the relationship between founders and investors uh you mentioned it's not always a uh, happy family how is the reality uh, is the interest between founders and investors always aligned or are there also some some critical parts where you would say okay sometimes it's uh pulling into two different directions mm. i mean as an early stage investor i'd say that generally i can't think of many situations where you wouldn't want to be aligned with the founder. I mean, there are definitely times where you would, you could be, but why many times where you wouldn't be. If the board is functioning as it should be, you're making decisions collectively um, about the future direction of the company. And you should be supportive of those decisions that the founder um, is, is executing on because those are the decisions that you've made collectively as a board. Um, in reality, <laughs> can slightly be slightly different to that. So in reality, um, VCs might want to be more revenue or commercial or metrics focused and founders typically tend to be more product focused. I mean, mm -hmm. that's one stereotypical example, but that can happen quite often. And again, that works well in a board, in a mixed board where you have different voices, where The founder is saying, well, these are the milestones. This is what we need to achieve to build a product that our customers are willing to pay for. Um, but the VCs are saying, okay, great. You can build the best product in the world, but um, how do you prove product market fit if ultimately no one is willing to pay for it? And having both works really well together. Um, I wouldn't say that's misalignment though. Again, mm -hmm. I'd say that's just health, That's just healthy, um, uh, different, maybe differences of opinion. Um, I think really the only misalignment that I can I can think of that can arise is at, at the subsequent round um, when founders want to go and do another big round and preserve their dilution um, and do it at the best valuation possible. And the fund might want to follow on into the into the round. And if they're putting more capital in the business, um, they're almost in this strange space between not wanting to get diluted on their existing shareholding but perhaps also wanting to increase their ownership. And so they want that capital that they're putting into the company to be optimized at, of course, the lowest uh, price per share, which means a lower valuation. Um, that is that where, where the VC sits will generally depend on um, whether they're just protecting their current stake or whether they're mm -hmm. actively trying to increase their stake. Um, perhaps you might see more misalignment in... Um, 
in in what you want if if the VC is is looking to actively increase um, their position. Um, uh, but that's really the only time that I can think of that um, there might just be a difference in what the VC might optimally want and what the founder optimally wants. But again, if the founder and the investor are both working for the long term and they're looking to build a big business together, um, the way we always put it at Playfair is this is a pie and we'd all much rather have a maybe slightly smaller slice of, of a bigger pie than have a massive <laughs> slice of the small pie. Yeah. So if we're all thinking about growth and we're all thinking about scaling and we're all thinking about what this thing could become, um, hopefully those misalignments don't get in the way of us building this massive business. Just for the short term. I couldn't agree more. I always like the example of Amazon. It's better to have 1% in Amazon than 100% of nothing. So it's uh, basically a great point. You mentioned this uh, product market fit. I was smiling because uh, I think, especially in scientific companies, it's a lot of possibility to build the best product ever for no market, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you manage uh, to hold your founders accountable to... Uh, not fall too much in love with the product, but uh, spend their passion more with finding out what the customer needs. But how do how do you do that? Yeah, um, with great difficulty. Normally, <laughs> um, I always try to align commercial and product milestones. Mm. So if we're trying to get to X point with the product, um, what's the commercial rationale for spending time and resource on building that product? Um, and what does that give us on the commercial side? Um, so for example, we're trying to build a product for a pilot that we are lining up with a customer and we need these two features because that is what will enable us to unlock that pilot. pilot. Fine, because the commercial rationale in that instance is that you secure the pilot and hopefully you secure you, you secure funds off the back of that pilot and you're able to evidence that there is a customer that is willing to pay for that pilot. And so in that case it's really easy because the product build is um a direct requirement to unlock that commercial milestone. I suppose where it gets really difficult is where you're building and it's not quite clear for what or to what commercially you are building and that's a scenario that um sometimes as a vc you, you you might have to step in and say um in an ideal world um we would build the best product we possibly could today but with limited time with limited resource with limited money what is the bare minimum? Because that is what an MVP is. What is the bare minimum that we can do to service mm-hmm. customers and be able to start showing product market fit? And in my view, product market fit, um, and we use proxy as a product market, uh, sorry, we use a revenue as a proxy or product market fit to say, well, if customers are willing to pay for this product, you're evidencing that there is a need. We don't know the scale of the need, but there is a need. and therefore. Um, there is space in this market. Again, we don't know the size for this product. So that makes sense. But to build a product in a black hole, in a vacuum, without being able to evidence that there is a need from customers is 
tough to continue back uh, supporting, um, particularly if the company's resources are disproportionately being spent on product build and mm. product uh, resource. Um, I suppose there are exceptions to that. So there are companies that have totally rejected that advice from VCs previously and said, actually, product-led growth is the way that our company is what's going to work for our company. Um, and, 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 that, and that works. Um, and um, it's, it's a super tough model because you are, it's difficult to fundraise off the back of um, very little to no commercial traction. Um, but it, it's been shown to work before. So I think in that case, as a VC, it's, well, this is my recommendation. This is what I've seen. This is what I suggest. But ultimately, the founder knows what's best for their business. The founder knows that they're at the helm. They're at the helm. They're, they're the captain of the ship. Um, and ultimately, it's their decision on which approach they want to take. Yeah, Steve Jobs was a genius in product market fit. I think uh, he had the talent of uh, understanding people's needs before they even knew it. Before they really, I mean, smartphone, iPhone, who needs an iPhone in a saturated market? And uh, he successfully demonstrated that you can place a product in a saturated market when you know what customers need and what they're looking for. I think it's the most important thing, 100%. finding the MVP. Um, let's talk about a, a deal. What was the deal that uh, you were most excited about? I <laughs> <laughs> um, say probably the first investment that I made when I joined Playfair. Um, hmm. There's always something special about the first one. So... Um, it's a company called Material Evolution. They're one of our portfolio companies. Um, it is a materials manufacturing and um, uh, machine learning technology uh, technology company. They are building novel materials that are sustainable, um, that are better in uh, many, many ways than uh, materials already available on the market. Um, and they just have a massive vision. They have just such an exciting thesis, which is um, they're starting with cement. Their thesis is that uh, cement accounts for 8% of global CO2 emissions. It's, it's dirty. It's bad for the ecosystem. It's bad for biodiversity. It's bad for water. Um, there's so many um, negative implications of manufacturing this material. And yet it's something that we really need as a society because um, it's it's super scalable and um, it's uh, a lot easier to transport. And um, it, a lot of the buildings over the past 50, 60 years have uh, actually moved to using cement as a core part of their building, building product. Um, so these guys um, want to tackle a, uh, a massive market with a massive problem um, mm. using technology that actually has the ability to fundamentally revolutionize that that market um and to me that's really exciting it's 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 not a step change um it's not a nice to have um it's making a fundamental impact in the world and to real people and that's super exciting to me did i did i understand hear that right you said cement the company is about cement and cement uh is responsible for two-thirds of co2 emissions of eight percent of CO two. Eight percent. So it's not sixty six percent. It's eight percent. It's really eight <laughs> percent. <laughs> okay, that was a misunderstanding for mine. Sorry for that. Um, how did you find the company? So this was a company that um, Chris um, 
a contact, a friend of Chris at the Heritage Group, um, uh, emailed over to him and said, I think this is something that might be quite interesting for you to look at. Mm. Um, and that was that was um, uh, evidence of a time where people knowing what you're interested in as a fund, what you're interested in personally as an investor works really well because they're able to um, recommend something that, um, you know, they've, they'd already invested in the company and they were following in, following on um, in the following uh, investment, were able to say, well, this is something that we, we, are, we, we believe in. This might be something that's interesting to you. That's how we came across them. Um, I think we might have um, first come across them. The timing is a bit unclear in my head. Um, Liz took part in our Female Founder Office Hours event and met uh, one of my other team members called Simon. Um, so I'm not quite sure which one came first, um, but actually it's quite interesting to show how quite often there can be multiple routes to meeting a fund and multiple ways to get in front of a fund. So yeah, that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's hard work for founders to to get the pitch deck on the table first, and it must not necessarily be just one meeting. It can be many, many touch points, like in a sales process. Mm-hmm. Let's look on the other side of the table. What are the hurdles that VCs usually have to overcome when they want to get in a deal like uh, your first deal? Is it is it just a, a clear flow? There are no hurdles, or are there so typical uh, points where you say it's not that easy to get get the deal nailed down? Um, I mean, there can be a bunch of hurdles, right? So the first thing is actually getting to the IC and deciding that you want to make the offer to invest. Um, parking that, that's that's just the investment process uh, more generally. Um, hurdles might be um, you are not able to agree on terms, for example. So um, the founder and the VC disagree fundamentally on what they believe the valuation of the company should be and how much dilution the founder is willing to take for that fundraise. Um, there might be disagreements in some of the other terms. Um, it might be just a timing thing. It might be that um, the VC gives a term sheet and the founder isn't 100% sure whether this is the fund for them and they want to wait until um, they're able to get to the end of the process with some of the other funds that they're speaking to. And as a VC, it's then um, it, it's, it, it can be a little bit tricky. Um, because the, the the founder is is in a difficult position. Um, I mean, other hurdles you you, you still have uh, due diligence, legal due mm-hmm. diligence, commercial due diligence to go through, and hopefully it's never an issue. <laughs> but um, uh, there could be something that comes up in due diligence at at the last uh, stage of the process. Um, that means that the fund is no longer able to invest. I mean, that's never happened at Playfair, thankfully. Um, but that could that would be a massive hurdle in actually being able to close out the fundraise. So I always say that nothing's done until the shareholder agreement and the long forms are signed and they're done. Um, mm. I don't. I try not to celebrate too early. Um, but generally, if the VC is honest and transparent and the founder is honest and transparent. Um, and you're in it for the right reasons and you see a, a path to working to each other with each other and you feel that this is the right fit, um, there really, in theory, shouldn't be any hurdles. Um, the practice, the practical uh, execution of that can be a little bit different sometimes. I like the two words that you mentioned, honest and transparency. I think this is very important in business. 100%. Yeah, super important and really important for us at Playfair as well. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. Couldn't agree more. Let's move to the fun part of the conversation. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts is the All In podcast. Um, they, it's for investors from the United States. They usually every week talk about uh, what's going on in the world. And uh, one of their investors is really good in predicting the future. And mm -hmm. since we are at the end of the year, uh, I would like to hear your predictions for the VC world of uh, 2023. Um mm -hmm. How do you see the world evolve for venture capital in the next year? It's just uh, mm. guesswork. It must not be a carrot. It's just a, a, a carrot. It's just <laughs> yeah. fun. Got to make sure you don't hold me to this. Um, I think, obviously, we are going into a recession um, in the UK, and a lot of the world is going into a downturn. So I suppose mm. a doom and gloom of it will be, um, I think that people will be slightly more cautious of deciding to become a founder. So we might see less companies being founded at the early stage. We might see the volume of uh, uh, new companies go down. Mm -hmm. um, we might see VCs becoming a lot more cautious and um, their risk appetite being a lot far, far less than it was in 2021 and 22 in investing in new companies or even following on in their existing companies. Um, and we might also see VCs actually struggling to fundraise from their LPs because a lot of LPs are corporates or uh, governments. And of course, there's that knock-on effect. If those bodies are struggling um, with liquidity or um, they suddenly don't want to be um, overexposed to a, a high-risk asset class like venture capital, that trickle-on effect means that VCs are going to struggle to raise funds um, in a way that they might not have struggled over the past couple of years. So that's all the doom and gloom. Mm. Having said that, there's a huge amount of dry capital in the market. Um, VCs have raised this year. Startups are still raising. Um, and particularly at the early stage, we're still seeing a lot of activity happening. Um, we're still investing. A lot of other funds that I speak to, most other funds that I speak to are still investing. Um, so as, uh, as always, there's money out there for the companies that are in it for the right reasons, that are, are good, strong investment opportunities. And those companies are going to face less competition for talent with tech layoffs and less companies being around. They're going to face less competition from new entrants. Um, they're going to face less competition uh, for capital from other startups. So. I suppose if you're um, a good, <laughs> if you're building a good product with a real market need, in a massive, uh, with a massive op opportunity to to revolutionise the space that you're working in, I'm really optimistic that there's space for you to fundraise and there's every opportunity for you to fundraise. And as a VC, I'm really optimistic that we are going to invest in a lot of companies that are exactly that. Um, maybe a little bit less than we would have in the part in the previous years. Maybe we're mm. going to see a little bit less volume, um, but we're still absolutely going to be doing it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic, um, but very optimistic nonetheless. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's always opportunity on the market and I think the best companies started uh, during recessions and downturns. Uh, I think Microsoft, exactly. Apple in the 70s and uh, yeah. I think WhatsApp, Uber in 2008, something around yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, exactly. 
Jivan, I have two questions left, but let me ask you uh, another question first. Uh, did we miss anything in the in the podcast that you would like to talk about? Nothing. I think that's everything. I think you're very thorough. Um, some really good questions there. Thank you very much. It's fun talking to you. So then, yeah, it's great to hear that what I like in 2022 is... Um, that the globally that the founder and venture capital ecosystem has really grown since the 90s there is so much opportunity on the market so many players on the market and 30 years ago it was completely different uh, it was difficult to get in touch with vcs most vcs were only in silicon valley basically inaccessible to the rest of the world due to the mm -hmm. lack of internet technology and now we have linkedin we have uh, social media we can have a conversation. You are in uh, the United Kingdom. I'm in Austria. We can share your <laughs> stories. It's such a great time. It does. Uh, people should be more optimistic and looking uh, in a bright future. Yeah, 100%. I mean, when Playfair um, was launched in 2013 by a founder, Fede, we were um, one of very few early stage funds in the London ecosystem. And now, um, God, I could, I could count 20, 30, 40, um, which is great. Right. And, and and that's pretty cool. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Let me ask you the final question. What piece of advice helped you the most in your journey as an investor? It's actually um, something that my dad would always say to me when I was young. And so I apply it to everything in life, but I think it's particularly helpful um, in VC. So uh, the saying that he always uses is, um, it's nice to be important, but it's important to be nice. Um, mm. And I think that's really applicable to VC because there is this really strange, in a way, power dynamic between um, investors and founders. Um, as an investor, you're a gatekeeper to capital and it's your responsibility to responsibly allocate that capital. And founders come to you wanting something that you can give them that will enable them to survive and thrive. Um, and it's really important that, you know, even though you're in this um, position of, of, of relative power and, and, and importance, um, that you use that responsibly and you don't allow that to um, change how you treat people and how you engage with people and every interaction you have with, with respect and you're out to make friends and not enemies. Um, and just generally that you don't lose your sense of self. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think that's, that's, that's always been really important to me, but I think it's, it's even more important to me in VC where I feel like that um, the risk of that happening is, is slightly higher because of the position that you're in. Um, so yeah, I always just try to remind myself that with, uh, with every interaction I have. No, that, that is great advice. Being kind, staying kind, uh, having a respect, respectful approach to people is uh, a really important advice. Couldn't yeah, agree more. Okay. Shivan, <laughs> it was great talking to you. I enjoyed the last one and a half hours. Um, I wish you and your family and the team at Playfair Capital uh, happy holidays and a fantastic start into the next year. And I hope we can catch up uh, someday in uh, London. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for inviting me. I, I didn't even realize it's been an hour and a half. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to have you on the show. Enjoy your weekend. Bye. Yes, you too. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. If you found this episode informative and engaging, don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button to stay in the loop for future episodes.
Your support helps the team spread the knowledge and reach more people who can benefit from the content. Leave a comment and share with others to help us grow the community. Thanks for being part of the LSG2G podcast journey.